Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you so much for the invitation. I've heard a lot about this congregation through the years, and all of it's been good. A lot of great things are done from this place and has been for a very long time. Uh, this week is Horizons at Fried Hardeman University, and so we are having a great week uh, down there. A lot of young people, over a thousand young people, campers and staff, uh, to teach and study and learn more about God, and it's one of the spiritual highlights of my year, and I think that's true of a lot of people who participate in it. We're talking tonight about being balanced by prayer, and the text that was assigned to me is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, and you probably know that verse. Uh, it is, as it turns out, the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Uh, it is to pray, and you finish it, without what? Ceasing. To pray without ceasing. Now, a lot of times when that verse is talked about, people want to try to figure out what exactly it means to pray without ceasing. I mean, how can it be that we can pray without ever stopping prayer? And maybe one of the ways we can answer that question, we'll talk about a second way at the end of the lesson, but one of the ways we can answer the question is by thinking about it not as praying continually without interruption, but rather praying persistently. That is, we never give up on prayer. In fact, Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, in verse number 1, in a passage that initiates a very well-known parable, the parable of the persistent widow, it, the Bible says this about Jesus, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. One of the easiest, easiest problems that we can have when it comes to prayer is to give up. Have you ever been in the middle of a situation where maybe your life was really stressful? Maybe you got a diagnosis or someone you love got a diagnosis that was not welcome. And you really, really desperately wanted God to solve the issue. And so you prayed. And you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed. And you know what? Nothing happened. At least nothing happened like you wanted it to happen. And it's really tempting to say, well, what's the use? I mean, does God actually hear me when I pray? Or does God actually care enough to do what I'm asking Him to do? I'm just going to give up. The Bible tells us that that is a tool that Satan uses to get us to give up on God. We ought always to pray and never to lose heart. So maybe when the Bible encourages us to pray without ceasing, what it really says is don't give up on God. Keep going to Him repeatedly, even when He doesn't seem to answer. You be persistent and He will eventually hear your cry for help. It's interesting to me that the children of Israel, both in uh, Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 3, the Bible tells us that they cry out to God. But do you know how long they had been in slavery? <laughs> I mean, I mean you, you run the numbers here. 400 years. And I've never prayed for 400 years, you know, obviously. Uh, these are people who are praying for a long, long time before God finally does something. But when He does, isn't it dramatic? And isn't it wonderful? And don't we have recorded in Scripture the ultimate power of God in leading His people out of Egypt? You see, when God does act, it is so dramatic and wonderful that it blows us away. We can never give up on God because He will never give up on us. So as we begin thinking about this topic tonight, what I want us to do is to consider some of the prayer failures that often afflict our prayer lives. And I have to admit that uh, this list is sort of drawn from my own personal experience, and I assume that my experience is not that much different than yours. One of them is, you know, the reason I don't pray any more than I do is because I just don't have the time. 
Have you ever thought that way? You get up in the morning, and, and you barely get up on time to get to work. So, you know, maybe you get a cup of coffee, and you're in the car, and you're gone. And then you get to work, and you get busy, and you go, 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 go. And then you come home, and it's rush hour, and you get home, and you see the kids, and you got to fix dinner, or maybe you got to eat dinner. And then you put your kids to bed, and it's like, oh, I'm so exhausted. And you go to sleep. If you're lucky in there, maybe you get 30 minutes of your favorite television show or something. But the reality is a lot of us are really busy. A lot of us have a lot of things to do. And it's really easy to say, you know, God understands that I just don't really have the time to pray. Or maybe I don't take the time to pray. Now, I don't want you to confess this. But does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, does anybody find it difficult to find any free time in the middle of the day to do anything other than what you got to do? Time can be a real deterrent in our prayer life. Or what about this? What about forgetfulness? Anybody just forget to pray? Maybe you could take the time, you just don't remember to. That's really easy to do as well. Or maybe when you actually do take the time to pray, your mind wonders. Now, I know this has never happened to anybody. Because the truth is, it is really easy in the middle of prayer to let our mind sort of drift away. Uh, I can remember a, a long time in my life, I had this practice, I would, I would pray right before I went to bed, and probably nine times out of ten, I fell asleep. And I don't know what the Lord was thinking, probably for the best, uh, but I just couldn't make it. I was so exhausted that I would fall, then I started thinking, well, maybe I need to pray at different times. And sometimes it's really easy to let our minds wonder where we just can't stay concentrated, and then we feel guilty, and then we say, well, should we pray at all if we can't pray to to the finish, and that sort of thing. So that's a problem. Or maybe it's this, a lack of belief in the power of prayer. A very famous book was written by um, a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner a few years ago, and uh, one of the major premises of the book, which became uh, quite well known, is prayer really isn't for God, because he doesn't really care, by the way, about us. Prayer is kind of like therapy. It's our way to sort of talk it out. And, you know, saying things out loud can be really therapeutic. And so that's really all prayer is for. God doesn't listen. He doesn't intervene. And he really doesn't care all that much. And so if you don't pray or you find prayer difficult, it's not really that big of a deal. The only thing that's affected is you don't get a chance to talk it out. Well, I don't believe the Bible teaches that, as we will see tonight. But it is a very popular idea. And I bet if we polled people in the churches of Christ and got them to be honest, that might be something that many of them would think too. You know, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened, so I'm just not convinced that it works. My experience teaches me God doesn't listen to me anyway, so why do I even bother? I am convinced that prayer is one of the weakest spiritual points for most Christians in the Lord's church today. It's true of a lot of preachers It's true of a lot of ministers, and it's true of a lot of us as well. So how do we sort of reprime ourselves to think about prayer as something that can connect us with God, to change our lives and transform our spiritual nature? Well, I want us to focus on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 to direct our thoughts tonight. Matthew chapter 6, you know this passage, many of you can quote it from memory, I know, beginning in verse number 9. But I want us to talk, as we think about what Jesus says here, as he's teaching us how to pray, not so much giving us a line by line of what we are to, to repeat, but principles, things for which we ought to pray. We ought to, number one, recognize that prayer ultimately is an expression of love. My wife and I, Hiram mentioned uh, my wife Ashley, 
We've been married, uh, it'll be later this month, 16 years. Uh, and one of the things that uh, is kind of interesting about our relationship is we dated almost entirely in a long-distance fashion. I was preaching over in western Kentucky in Mayfield, if anybody knows where Mayfield, Kentucky is. I was preaching over in Mayfield uh, right out of school when I graduated from Freed Hardeman. She was still a student, so we were a little over two hours apart. And uh, I think it didn't take us very long before we discovered, you know, this kind of relationship is going somewhere. And, you know, each of us, we took the time every night without fail to pick up the phone and call one another. Now, can you tell me why we did that? You know, it's funny because I can't remember a single time of her ever saying, you know, I would have called you, but I just forgot. Or I would have called you, but I didn't really have the time. Or I would have called you, or, uh, but I just didn't think it would work. That's not what happens because when you love somebody, you can't wait to talk to them. You know where I'm going with this, right? Whenever you love God, you can't wait to talk to Him. You don't need to be motivated to pray. You want to pray because He's your friend. There is a relationship there and you can't help but talk to God because you're connected with Him. The way that you want to talk to your father or mother whenever they are going through a hard time. The way you want to talk to your children whenever they're out on their own. Because you love them, you can't wait to have the conversation. When we fall in love with God, we will pray to Him. Because, because prayer is nothing more than an expression of love. Secondly, though, prayer is an expression of humility. It is the ultimate surrender. It is us saying to God, we don't know what's best for us. We don't know what we ought to do. We can't fix all these problems. We need your help to surrender to him and let him take control of our lives. You see, God is not part of our lives. We are part of God's life. Yet sometimes some of us, and and I will point to myself on this, because I teach the Bible literally every day except Saturday, and even some Saturdays I end up teaching the Bible to somebody. But it is so tempting for me to talk more about God than I talk to God. And I think that's probably tempting for a lot of us. We need to understand that prayer is our surrender It is our lifeline. It emerges from love and it comes from an attitude of humility. In Psalm 130 and verse 1, the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. When I'm at my lowest point, that's when I reach out to you. And so when Jesus is talking about prayer, there is a rich tradition that he has inherited, both from the Bible and from the Judaism of his day, to understand that prayer is one of the most important things that spiritual people can engage in. And so he says this, look at verse number 9 with me if you would. Pray then like this, Jesus says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so your version may be a little bit different. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven... Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but do deliver us from the evil one. Notice in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says a couple of things that I want to focus on. Number one, he says that the name of God ought to be sanctified. Most versions of the Bible use the word hallowed, which I don't know that you use every day. I I don't. Uh, But it really means to be holy, to be sanctified, to be made holy. And then he says, I want your kingdom to 
come and I want your will to be done. In every single one of our prayers, kind of at root, the reason why we pray in the first place is because we are calling upon God's absolute power to take over and transform this world. That's what we want more than we want anything else. More than we want advancement in our own lives. More than we want more money. More than we want more power. We want God to reign in this world. And you know, there are good reasons to think that that is starting to happen in our culture. That people have had enough of being told you can think whatever you want to think and believe whatever you want to believe. People are now starting to come to the point, and and you can see this, by the way, when you start to read some of the more popular modern philosophers. Uh, Not that I'm the only probably weirdo who tries to do that, but um, this is something that is changing. That now, like academics and Ivy League institutions are saying, you know, maybe we can know at least some truths. That is a major shift from where our culture has been for the last 40 years. And I think that what we're ultimately seeing by some of the people who are gaining a voice in popular culture, people like Jordan Peterson and folks like this, you may not know who that is, that's okay. These are people who are resonating with folks. And people are starting to listen and say, you know, there are some things that I can know. There are some things that are right and wrong. And I think it's going to lead our culture back toward a revival. We may be headed toward a third great awakening in our own lifetimes. And let me tell you, as God's people, we better be ready for it. Because God might be ready to burst on the scene of civilization in ways that we can't even imagine. And if we are not ready to take up that mantle and lead the world toward God, who else is going to do it? We need to be praying for opportunities to be the living embodiments of God's absolute power in our culture, in our world. It may be in Kentucky, it may be in Tennessee, it may be in New York, it may be in California. There are opportunities for God's power to express itself. And we ought to be praying for those things. Notice Jesus says that the name of God ought to be exalted. Hallowed be your name. The name of God is not God. The name of God is a name that the Jews were afraid to say for fear that they might mispronounce it or mess it up and therefore dishonor the name of God. Um, In fact, I heard uh, a lot of people of the Jewish faith say uh, Hashem, which means the name. Like the first time I heard that, I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought I misunderstood. But whenever they see the name of God in the Old Testament, there's a strand like Orthodox, more conservative Judaism, who says... uh, like Hashem said to Abraham, the name. They actually call God the name. And so when Jesus says, let your name be sanctified, what we're talking about is the very nature and essence of God. You remember in Exodus 3 and verse 14, whenever Moses uh, asked God, you know, I'm going to go to the Israelites and I'm, I'm going to tell them that some kind of God has spoken to me from this bush that's burning but doesn't burn up. That's kind of weird. So what am I supposed to say to them? And Moses is told, tell them this. I am... Now, English translations give a very strange rendering that, quite honestly, I don't quite understand. I am... The King James says, that I am. You know this passage? Uh, newer versions say, well, I am who I am. I don't really know what to make of that um, exactly, but the Greek Old Testament translates it like this. I am the one who is. Here's what you tell them. You tell them existence sent you. Uh, what? Whenever we think of God, God is pure being. He is pure essence. He is pure existence. Who is God? The one who is. 
His name is special and perfect. It signifies His role in creation. It signifies His role in transformation. It is everything that we are and more. That's who God is. And so for His name to be sanctified on earth, it's for people to come to a real recognition that God is not just some higher power. He is not some supernatural being who probably created the world and then stepped away and let it happen. God is a being who is involved in every aspect of His creation. And He drives us forward as human beings every day. Isaiah says in Isaiah 29 and verse 23, looking forward to an ideal age, a messianic age, He says, For when He sees His children, the work of My hands in His midst, they will sanctify My name, God says. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Jesus might well be asking us to pray for God's power and domination to come in this ideal era where all people will recognize Him and the Heavenly Father. We ought to pray for the name of God to be exalted and hallowed among people in our world. But number two, we also ought to pray for God to reign through His church. I don't need to talk about this too much because uh, I'll go off too far, but... um, There are a lot of Christians today, and I'm judging entirely by Facebook, which I suppose is a good way to judge what people think, and um, or maybe not so much, but a lot of Christians, I'm under the impression, think that God is intervening in the world through the government. Or God ought to intervene through the right politician. If we could just get the right people elected, that would prove that God is in power. I'm a little confused theologically by that rationale. Like, I'm all in favor of, like, voting for the right candidates and supporting the right policies, etc. But God needs to reign through His people in the church. We need to be the expression of the power of God. And the power of God is seen most obviously and clearly in the way that we treat other people. We ought to be praying for God's kingdom to come. A lot of people say, well, that, that prayer shouldn't be prayed by Christians because God's kingdom has already come. The church exists. But God's kingdom hasn't come to everybody. There are people in the world today, I know this is hard to believe, who have never heard of Jesus Christ. There are people in the world today who have never heard the gospel of salvation. There are Christians today who have never been told that you can wash away your sins in the waters of baptism. God's kingdom might have come in a historical sense, but God's kingdom has not come to everyone And so we can still pray for God's kingdom to come to the world today in a very real and meaningful sense. For God to burst forth on the scene with the church leading the way. You know, I'm a a church historian. And one of the things that I noticed throughout church history is that the times when the churches grew the most are the times when the church was out in front doing what the government would not Doing what no one else would, taking care of those who were poor and blind, taking care essentially of those who could not take care of themselves, that's when people said, you know, there's something different about these people. There's something that's not like everybody else. They're not out for themselves. They're out for something greater than themselves. They live for a purpose that is larger than any of the rest of us know. That's the kind of thing the world needs to see in us The power of God. Daniel 2 and verse 44 talks about a kingdom that God will establish in the days of Roman kings that will never be destroyed. The church is invincible. But sometimes Christians allow themselves to be picked off. In the book of Matthew chapter 28 verse 18, we know this passage as beginning the Great Commission, but Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus rules the world. 
He is in control. God set up a kingdom. No matter what government, no matter what nation, no matter what religion tries to oppose it, they will fail because His kingdom will not and cannot be destroyed. But sometimes we as His people allow ourselves to get picked off. It's time for us to be God's people, His living expression of what His power looks like. His power through love and mercy and kindness. Things that transform our world in ways that everyone can understand. But then number three, we also pray for the will of God to be accomplished, no matter what that will is. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 39, Jesus, the Bible tells us, in the Garden of Gethsemane, went a little further, the Bible says, and he fell on his face and he prayed this prayer. You know what the prayer is. My Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup, of course, being the cup of wrath that the prophet Jeremiah says God is going to pour down the throats of all the unrighteous nations. That wrath, by the way, being poured out on his son. And he says, let that cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Not as I will, but as you will. Now, I can imagine there were a list of things that Jesus really didn't want to do when he lived in this earthly body. And boy, the cross must have been one of them. He, he could imagine. In fact, we're, we're told by another Jewish historian who lived later in the first century that crucifixions had happened periodically throughout Jesus' young life. He knew what a crucifixion looked like, and he didn't want any part of it. And yet, he says, despite the pain, despite the sacrifice... Whatever you want, that's what I'm willing to give. Can I say tonight that that's my attitude all the time? Because, by the way, we all have to sacrifice something to be the people we are. But here's the good news. We get to choose what we sacrifice. We can sacrifice self and reap the glory of God. Or we can sacrifice for self and reap the consequences of that decision. But we're in control. We need to pray for God's will to be done, not only in the world, but in our lives. And when he asks us to do things that are difficult, when our church gives us opportunities to do things like take mission trips and go out into the community to help people, and we say, boy, I just don't want to do that. I would rather have my Saturday to garden or whatever you you enjoy doing. Whenever the Bible, whenever God presents you with opportunities to do something that's hard, embrace them. Not my will, but your will be done. We need to pray for God's will, not only for the world, but also for our lives. Number two, notice that Jesus says that we also need to pray for answered prayers. Um, Notice in verse 11 and 12 again, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, there's something about that that I think is interesting because, of course, at the time of Jesus, people didn't have the kind of food that we have. Uh, I just ate some bread a few moments ago. It was of the Panera variety. And it was a lot better than most of the food that people were served at the time of Jesus. It was had a lot more variety, had a lot more flavor. And so we're talking about a a part of the world and a time in history where people didn't have that much food. And so when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, that's a literal prayer. Give us this day enough bread to sustain our lives. Because that's all a lot of people could expect. We need to be willing to pray, number one, for our needs. To pray for our needs. There are things we need and to recognize those things don't come from us because we have a job and a bank account. They come from God. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, just a little before this passage, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, if you teach teenagers and you read that verse, here's the question you're going to get. Why does God want us to ask if He already knows what we need? Anybody ever thought about that? Well, let me give you two thoughts. Number one, asking signifies, number one, that we know what we need. And number two, we know how our need is supplied. Number one, I am aware of the fact that there are certain things I need. And number two, I know who provides for those needs. You know, I am a father of three children. And I know there are certain things they need. In fact, a lot of times I know what they need before they know what they need. Okay, my son recently turned 11 and my wife has decided he needs deodorant. And so now he is using deodorant. He does not know that he needs deodorant and so often he forgets. And so we supply uh, for that need by reminding him to put it on and that sort of thing. And this is the way that it is to be a parent. Your children don't always know what they need. Okay, but you love for them to ask even when they do. Because you want them to recognize that you're there for them. That you want to take care of them. That you love them. Maybe God's a little bit like that for us. We also pray for the sins of other people. Both collectively and individually. Sin is the greatest problem the world has ever known. And not enough people realize that in the world today. But the Bible challenges us, whenever sin takes hold of a society, to repent of that sin and turn away from that sin and beg for forgiveness. We have examples in the Bible of people like Jeremiah, people like Daniel, praying for the sins of their nation. We ought to pray for our country. We ought to pray for our world. We ought not to say our world is lost or our country is lost, but we ought to be praying to God that He forgive our nation for our historic sins. The Bible says in Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14, a verse that uh, is part of a song actually sometimes we sing, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. God promises whenever people are willing to stop what they're doing and seek me, I'm going to listen to them every time and I'm going to forgive them. One of the wonderful stories in the Old Testament, I think it's one of my favorite stories, comes from the prophet Hosea. You know, you know this story. It's kind of a terrible story in a way, isn't it? How Gomer, the wife of Hosea, is constantly unfaithful. And yet when she goes astray and pursues relationships with other men, God tells Hosea, you go and, and bring her back home. And I can imagine Hosea. Like, he goes and gets Gomer. He brings her back home. She's there. Kids are there. Hosea feels so good. The family's back together again. And then maybe, I don't know, a few... Weeks, few months later, she's gone again. Hosea, go get her. He goes and retrieves his wife, brings her back home, and all is well, and she's gone again. And you understand, this whole situation is, of course, real, but it's also a symbol. A symbol for what Israel constantly does to God. How he constantly reaches out and brings them back in. And everything is right. The covenant is restored. And then they, because of their idolatry, because they cannot stop sinning, they drift away again. 
Sometimes it can be that way in our lives. And it's something we should recognize, number one, that God never stops loving us, even when we sin. God never stops loving those we love, even when they sin. But secondly, when we get ready to return, He will always welcome us. We ought to be praying for that. We ought to be praying for the restoration of those who are lost. In a congregation of this size, there are bound to be a number of people who need the Lord tonight, who do not recognize that fact. We need to be praying that they come to the realization that they need God more than they need anything else and that they will be restored. C.S. Lewis said in a letter that is very obscure, I randomly and happily came across this statement, but he wrote a letter to his friend on July 6, 1949. Arthur Greaves was his name. He says this, I have two lists of names in my prayers. Those for whose conversion I pray and those for whose conversion I give thanks. This little trickle of transferences from list A to list B is a great comfort. I thought about that and I was like, you know what? I should do that. Make a list of those people for whom I'm praying. The people in our congregation who are lost. The people in our congregation who haven't come back since COVID. The people in our congregation who need Jesus more than they even realize and pray that something happens in their lives to change their minds. We ought to be praying not only for our nation, we ought to be praying for our friends and our neighbors and our family that they will realize what the Lord has done for them and His power over their lives and they will come back. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, In verse number 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of the things that we talked about actually in my class this afternoon at Horizons is if Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, that implies we might have some enemies. A lot of us pretend like people, everybody likes us. And if everybody doesn't like you, you must not be doing something right. Don't try to do that. Jesus tells you you're going to have enemies. He tells you you're going to have persecutors, so embrace that reality and pray for those people. Pray for those people to change. Pray that there will be an open door. One of the best insurance salesmen I ever knew is a member of the church over in western Kentucky. And he told me this story one time, and he made a point about evangelism, so it's actually a great illustration. But he was trying to sell insurance to this guy who would not hear of it. You know how salesmen can be. And so he was really persistent. And this guy said, you know, I'm not even going to open the door for you anymore. I'm just tired of you coming by. And so he uh, took a a box and he put an old shoe in it and put a note in the shoe. And he mailed it to this guy. And he put his phone number on it. And the guy opened up the package, opened up the shoe, and there was a note. It said, just trying to get my foot in the door. (laughs) And so the guy called him and guess what? He sold insurance to the man. You know, sometimes we can be pretty persistent and as a result of our persistence and our creativity and expression of the fact that we care, we can turn enemies into friends. And so we ought to be praying for that every day of our lives. We ought to pray desperately that God will answer our prayers for the hope and transformation of the world. But then number three, and finally tonight, we ought to pray for God's authentic presence in our lives. Verse number 13 says this, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to be calling upon God to lead us. 
and when He leads us to keep us away from all the things that are harmful and difficult in our lives. In one of the most challenging passages to me in the Bible is found in Matthew chapter 4 in verse number 11. Now you know Matthew chapter 4 because this is the passage that tells about the temptation of Jesus. Remember that? Where the devil comes to him and puts him through three really challenging temptations, remember? But then notice verse 11. The Bible says, Satan left Jesus and angels came. And the tense of the verb here is interesting. Angels came and were ministering to him. I wonder how long the angels stayed and ministered to Jesus. I also wonder if Jesus needed spiritual strength during a moment of weakness, how much the more do I? A lot of people think about Jesus as this superhuman who, yeah, he was in all points tempted as we are, but not really. I mean, temptation really didn't affect him. It's so easy to think that way. I told a, a class one time, and um, a student said that this made sense to him, so hopefully it makes sense to you, but scholars tend to have a lot of trouble with the divinity of Jesus. But no problem at all with the humanity of Jesus. Believers tend to have a lot of trouble with the humanity of Jesus. And no problem at all with the divinity of Jesus. We have no problem believing that Jesus is God, that he's this supernatural figure who could do amazing things like miracles, like coming back to life after being dead for three days. But we have a lot of trouble accepting the fact that he was no different than you and me. But if we really believe what the Bible tells us, he was just like us. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Jesus learned some stuff. Namely, what it means to be a human to suffer as a human, to be rejected, to be mistreated, to be ostracized and outcast. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotion that you and I do. And if he needed the strength of the Spirit, boy, how much the more do I. We ought to pray that God empower us and strengthen us every single day. Not only did Jesus need strength, the apostles needed it too. Remember in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41, and I think the wording of this passage is fascinating uh, because Jesus, you know, he's about to get arrested and stuff. And so Peter, James and John are with him and they're in the garden and Jesus goes off by himself and he says, uh, I want you to watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Remember this. And then he says, we sing these words, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't say you are weak? Peter, James, and John, you guys are losers. You keep falling asleep. This is the most trying moment of my life, and you can't even keep your eyes open. Some friends, you are. That's not what Jesus says, and that's not what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant to say is, you want to so badly, but your human nature is overcoming your spiritual nature. And in moments like that, What we need is the power of God to enter into our lives, to revive us and strengthen us, to give us the power to do things we cannot do on our own. And it's unfortunate that so often in my life, the the time I turn to God is when I figure out I just can't do it by myself. I waste a lot of effort doing it like that. Why don't I start with God instead of trying to end with Him? Probably be a lot better off. 
Jesus recognizes that the apostles were wonderful people. Peter, James, and John were the elite among the twelve. But they were human beings. And just like all human beings, sometimes we need some help from God. And they needed it that night and probably drew on that strength for the rest of their lives. We need to pray that God helps us overcome temptation that God helps us to take advantage of opportunities to be courageous when our human nature says to shrink back, to conquer temptation when everything within us says, indulge your pleasure. We need God to give us strength. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice Paul does not say, I can do all things, period. And Paul couldn't do a whole lot, but he could do all things through Jesus. And so can we. Number two, we need to pray for God's presence in our lives constantly, for Him never to leave us. One of the things I love about the Exodus story is the children of Israel are led by God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I think that that's more than just a navigational beacon for them. I think that that is intended to illustrate, I will never leave you. Whenever times are hard, you can find me. Whenever life is difficult, just look and I'm there. That God's presence will never leave us in our lives, no matter how bad things get. And we can always find Him in prayer. Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, in a verse we know so well, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Notice what Paul is saying here. Again, this is a verse well known, but not often thought about and, and explained. Paul is saying, you know, the outside kind of looks like Paul. You know, the same guy who persecuted Christians. I still look like that guy, you know. But the inside, it, it's, it's not me. And I've taken all that Paul and I've just pulled it out of there. And it's Christ. Could you say that about yourself? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> a lot of days... That would be a stretch for me. It's Jesus Christ who lives in me. It's, 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 it's not Justin Rogers. It's, it's Jesus. A lot of the times that's not true. Is that true for you? I was talking to somebody on the way up here, a person who's been a mentor of mine for many, many years, and he's getting older and he talks about getting older, which is one of the features of getting older, I've learned, as you talk about it. And he, he, he said... Um, One of the things about getting older that I treasure is I feel closer in my relationship with God than I ever have. How cool is that to hear from one of your spiritual heroes? You have that to look forward to. The more time you spend with the Lord, the closer you get to Him. See, the church fathers have this idea that the more we grow in our relationship with God, the more we become like Him, the more we learn to replace the spirit of self with the Spirit of Christ so that He sort of fully takes over who we are. And it's not us. The people who used to know us, they don't really recognize us because the things we used to say and the way we used to talk and and all that that used to be us is, is changed and transformed. We're different people. That's what we look forward to and we ought to be praying for that every day. That Christ will so transform us that he takes over our lives so that it's no longer us, but him. 
Athanasius, one of the church fathers in the 4th century, said this, God became the bearer of flesh so that man can become the bearer of spirit. How wonderful is that to think about? In conclusion, we talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17 that one way of looking at the command to pray without ceasing is that we ought to be constant and persistent in our prayers. Another way of looking at it is that our entire life is encapsulated by constant communion with God. Our entire life is such an act of service because we're constantly dwelling in His presence and He is constantly with us. One author who lived in the third century says this, He who prays without ceasing, or he prays without ceasing, who combines prayer with necessary acts and acts with prayer. Only in this way is it possible to pray without ceasing. It consists, watch this, in regarding the totality of Christian existence as a single long prayer. What we are accustomed to call prayer is only a part of it. In other words, prayer is not a moment in our day. It's not a point in the middle of a worship service. Prayer is a lifestyle. A lifestyle of constant communion with God, where He is in dialogue with us through His Word as we meditate upon it day and night, and we are in dialogue with Him as we turn our thoughts constantly to Him in prayer. Prayer is probably one of the most easily easily neglected of the spiritual disciplines. And neglecting prayer is one of the most detrimental things that you and I as Christians can do. So let's rededicate ourselves to the practice of prayer tonight. Let's rededicate ourselves to the Lord. And let's call for His kingdom to reign in the world, not only through us, but also in us. It may be that you're here tonight and... You look at your life and you say, boy, I need to make some changes. I've been thinking about these sorts of things for a long time and and I really need to get right with the Lord. I need to restore my relationship with Him and and I've, I've sat back too long. I really need to take command of where I'm headed spiritually. If we can help you with that tonight, there's nothing that we would rather do than pray for you and encourage you along as you make that effort. Or maybe it's the case that you need to become a Christian tonight by surrendering your sins and repentance, by confessing the sweet name of Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, and be immersed in water for the remission of your sins tonight. We would love to watch as you made that decision. Or maybe it's the case that you just want more information. You want to study more. You want to know more about the nature of God and His will for your life. I'm sure there are capable people here who would love nothing more than to talk with you about your needs. If we can help you in any way, come forward right now as we stand and sing.